Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And today, we're going to continue our study uh, through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 9 and praise him for his justice. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you first for your word, that it is living that it is active, that it penetrates our hearts, and that, most importantly, it reveals the person and the work of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray as we look at this great text today that, that you would help us, we who are in need of you, in need of the revelation that you have given to us that, that clearly reveals our rebellion against you. And it shows our great need of Christ and of how you meet that need through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. So I pray, Lord, that you would teach us from your word, that you would illuminate your word to us, and that we would we would apply this word to our hearts and to our lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 9. Psalm 9 says this. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I'll be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence, for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me, O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all of your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made, in the net that they hide, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known, he has executed judgment, the wicked are snared in the work of their own hands." The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but men. This is a reading of God's holy, precious word. One of the most famous stories in the Old Testament is Solomon's judgment between two women who both claimed the same baby. It seems like an impossible case to decide. Here is the way it was presented to Solomon in 1 Kings 3, 17 through 22. It says this, The one woman said, O oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. And then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. 
And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, No, the living child is mine, and the dead child is yours. The first said, No, the dead child is yours, and the living child is mine. And thus they spoke before the king. How could any judge solve this dilemma, we might ask? Today, we would use DNA testing. But that was not an option at this time. So what did Solomon do? 1 Kings 3, 25-28 tells us, And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and, and give half to the one and half to the other. And then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, Because her heart yearned for her son, <coughs> O my lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours, divide him. And then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Solomon's answer here is so legendary that virgin, versions of this story have traveled all around the world. A 13th century Chinese writer, Li Kuafu, wrote a classical play called The Circle of Chalk with a similar plot. The wise judge, Bao Zin, puts the two mothers in a circle of chalk and orders each mother to pull the baby out of the circle. The true mother lets go, of course, because she doesn't want to harm her son. In 1944, Berthold Brecht gave this story a twist in his famous play, the Caucasian Chalk Circle. And why does this story capture our imagination so? We long for justice. We long for a judge who is going to be fair and honest, a judge who will see through the lies and deceit in order to do what is right. This longing is buried in the heart of every single human being. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has set eternity on our hearts. And remember, we're talking about the one and the Lord who has created us in his image and likeness. And we learn from other scriptures that God is a just God. And so the desire for justice, it should lead us to God because he is the just ruler and the judge of the universe. This Reality that I'm describing here is at the heart of this psalm, Psalm 9. Psalm 9, 7 through 8 says, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Every human judge is a reflection of the true judge, God. And our longing for fairness and justice is an echo of our deeper longing for God. And this is why this psalm speaks so powerfully to our hearts today. Because God brings himself glory by ruling and judging the world with justice. Many people today, they're confused about this. They say, you know what? I have to do my part. I'm the one that has to uh, affect change. I'm the one that has to engage in justice. But justice is not a man-made idea. Remember, I just said, God is a just God. When, when so, what social justice does is it perverts this order. And it, and it says, you know what? I have to do something in order to affect transformation in my day and age, because you know what? I don't really trust God. That's the danger of social justice, is it perverts the justice of God. It flips it on its head. Instead of God being a just God, and so we trust him, and we, we trust that even, even in the here and now and in the future, he will bring to justice those who do 
wrong, those who violate the law of God. And God will do it. He will, he will right all wrongs in the final day. Before the great right throne judgment, he will execute his justice perfectly. Why? Because God is a holy God. We might think today, be tempted to think, you know what? There's so much injustice out there, sex trafficking, abortion, so on and so forth. When will God deal with man? Will it ever happen? The answer is yes. It'll happen in his time. It'll happen at the end of history. Revelation 20 tells us very clearly that that God will roll out the scrolls and he knows all the deeds of all, all every man throughout all history and they will stand before that great white throne judgment. And they will give an account for what they did with their lives. This is these are non-Christians. If you're a non-Christian today, you don't believe and trust in, in Christ, this is, this is your fate. You, you may think, you know what, I can just go on. I can live however I want to live. I can do whatever I want to do. And you know what? On the last day, guess what? What matters is I'll repent and believe. But, but how do you know when the last day will be? Do you know when that is? Do you know the length of your days? Well, guess what? Your creator knows. And that's why you should repent and believe. And, and by the way, even this doctrine of God's justice, it should motivate us as Christians. It should motivate us to stand on the word of God and to proclaim it. Many people fudge, many Christians fudge on this. They compromise in this area. We should not compromise. We should preach the word of God and trust that God, by his spirit, will use the word to do what he does, to convict sinners, to equip the saints, uh, all for his glory. Now, this is the first, uh, well, let's, let's get this. Uh, out of the way here. This is the first psalm, the first direct psalm of praise in the book of Psalms. David begins by praising God himself, and he commands all of us to praise God as well in verse 11. This, this first psalm of praise lists God's name because he is a wise, he's a fair, he's a just judge. And when we see God's glory as the judge of all the world, our hearts should sing to the Lord. In some translations, Psalm 9 and 10 are all one psalm. There consist that the, in these translations, it consists of 39 verses. But this shifts the chapter numbering for many of the psalms that follow in the Bible. Psalm 11 is now Psalm 10, Psalm 23 is Psalm 22, and so on and so forth, and on and on. This is because the early Greek and Latin translations the Septuagint and the Vulgate combine Psalms 9 and 10 as one psalm. Some Orthodox and even Roman Catholic Bibles follow that order or print the alternate chapter in brackets. However, most modern English translations follow the Hebrew order and keep verses or keep Psalms 9 and 10 as individual psalms. Psalm 9 is an acrostic psalm built on the first 11 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. We're talking about the Hebrew language here, not the book of Hebrews, the Hebrew language in the Hebrew alphabet. Verse 1 begins with the Hebrew word, Aleph, and verse 18 begins with the letter Kaf. And these alphabetical lines build on one another as David pours out his praise to the God who judges justly. And so we can divide this psalm into David's praise in verses 1 through 12 and David's prayer in verses 13 through 20. First, David's praise. David sets the tone for this psalm in Psalm 9, 1 through 2, which says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. David worships the Lord with five synonymous verbs. Give thanks, recount, 
Be glad, exult, sing praise. His whole being here is involved in the praise of God. His mind is engaged. He knows what God has done. His praise is sincere. He's not just saying what he knows he's supposed to say. He's not just reciting things by rote memory, but he means it. He gives thanks to the Lord Yahweh with his whole heart in verse 1. You see, worship is not just some wishful thinking. It involves the heart, the mind, and all that we are. But David's worship is also grounded in reality. He says, I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. God's mighty acts and creation and history are beyond human comprehension. They are truly awe-inspiring and history-altering. But David's praise is also public. As he recounts the wonders of God, he tells others about God. He is majestic and the mighty creator of all the constellations. He is the Savior who led the people of Israel out of Egypt and settled them in a land of their own. Praise has an intellectual component. It is a rational retelling of historical realities. Praise is also emotional. Now, if our praise is only cerebral, we're missing the heart response that we should have when we see God. Praise is the joyful, happy gladness of exulting in God himself. David breaks out in praise to the Most High. But you might have a question at this point. Why praise? Why does God ask us to praise him? Why is Psalm 9 a song or a psalm of praise? In fact, we need to ask another question. Why are the psalms full of praise? And we need to answer these questions at the very start of the psalms of praise. Because some people today have a problem with us asking, or with God asking us, excuse me, to praise him, praise him for anything, praise him for his justice. They ask questions like this, what kind of God needs his people to praise him? After all, we look down on people who are so insecure that they need a pat on the back, right? They need to be built up. They need to be told how smart they are. We admire people who are confident and composed, who don't fish for compliments, We don't like businessmen who have to tell us how they time the markets. We don't like athletes who brag about their gold medals or their accomplishments. We don't like actors or actresses who are self-absorbed. And so we wonder, is God like that? We despise the crowd of people that fawn over dictators or billionaires who feed their egos. Is Is that what we're doing when we're praising God Well, one thing that we need to be very, very clear on is that God is not weak. God is not insecure. He doesn't need to be built up, and he doesn't need to feel good about himself. In Acts 17, 24 through 25, Paul says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and the earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything in it. And so God is, he is totally self-sufficient in and of himself. That means that God is good. He's God. He's God. He, he doesn't have a need. And yet out of the overflow of, of, of the abundant love of the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he made us in his own image and likeness, not because he had a need, but out of the overflow of the Trinity, God made us. God has no needs. And so if God did have any needs, puny people like us, though, finite creatures that we are, we could not fulfill those needs. We're we're talking about the God who exists outside of time and space. He created the world in six literal days, and on the seventh rested. The one who creates does not have a need. And so why does God command us then to praise him? Well, think about with me about the reason that you praise something. We praise the things that bring us joy. We look at a baby's tiny fingers and gush. Look at how perfect those fingers are. You walk by a lilac bush and you say to your wife, doesn't that smell wonderful? Your, your team in football scores a touchdown 
And he shouted, did you see that pass? That was ridiculous, right, dude? You point out the, the red maple on the corner as it changes color. We praise the very things that we enjoy. Well, the thing is, is God is the most beautiful, the most exciting, the most captivating thing in the whole universe. If we see him, our hearts will leap to praise him. And so the command to praise God is a command to open our eyes to see God for who he is so that we will respond with joy at who he has revealed himself to be so that we will treasure him with our whole hearts. In fact, the only reason someone would not praise God is because they're blind to who he, who he is. This is Romans 1. And the Psalms are constantly lifting our eyes to see who God is, filling our picture of him, exalting another aspect of his character, displaying more of his mighty, wonderful deeds. When we see him, he is so thrilling and glorious that we should praise him. And so the command to praise God is also a command to be happy and joyful in the Lord. Praise is a natural conclusion for the things we enjoy. If, if you can't smack your friend on the leg and say, wasn't that a great play? You don't enjoy the game much. This is why people go to sports bar to watch a game when they have a perfectly good TV at home. Joy is incomplete until we express it in praise. The bottom line is our joy in God is incomplete until we can express it in praise. And we see this clearly in the opening verses of Psalm 9. David recounts God's wonderful deeds. He exalts God with the same breath that, by the way, God gave him. And he gives us. And so he tells others what God has done and rejoices in God all at the same time. And so why does God ask us to praise him? He's worthy of praise. But he does not need praise in the slightest. He is infinitely perfect. He's infinitely complete in and of himself. And God lifts up his glory before us. He commands us to praise him because that's the kindest thing God for do, do for us is to man that we worship him. And so he compels us to lift up our eyes and see that he is the most beautiful and exciting being in the universe. And so he compels us to be glad, happy, joyful by admiring the greatness of his glory. He compels us to see his light and to find true life. If God were angry with us, he would hide his face from us so we would not see him. And yet God reveals himself in the scriptures because he loves us and he offers us full-hearted joy in worshiping him. In fact, this brings us to the content of David's praise. In Psalm 9, David recounts God's wonderful deeds in the verses that follow. God judges the world with justice, delivering his people and condemning the wicked. And so first, David praises God for delivering him personally. Psalm 9, 3 through 4 says, When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. The word win in verse 3 tells us that, God's en that David's enemies have not yet turned back. The grammar indicates that David is looking forward to God's deliverance. And the context also suggests that we should take the Hebrew verbs in verses 4 through 7 as referring to the future. In other words, David does not praise God for the things that he has already received. David is praising God in faith. And this is hugely important for us because we are so tempted in, in our finite, as finite beings, to, to look to our circumstances rather than to look to the Lord, right? In the midst of a trial, in the midst of a difficulty, in the midst of a challenging situation, where do you turn? And notice that. Notice where do you turn? Do you, do you turn to your sports? Do you turn to your spouse? Do you turn to a friend? Or, or do you, what's your first reaction? Is your first reaction in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a difficulty, is it to get on the phone? Is it to message somebody? Is it to text them and so on and so forth? Or is it to get in the Bible, to get into prayer, 
the, these kind of things, your, your very first reaction, they, they reveal a lot about your spiritual maturity. Now, don't hear me say that you, you shouldn't text or pray and, or, or, excuse me, text your friend or get on the phone and call somebody and share about what's happening. But, but what I'm saying is, is that your first reaction in the midst of a trial, in the midst of hardship and so on and so forth, should be to pray, to read the word. Because this shows where, where the allegiance of your heart is. It shows that you, you want to take this to the Lord. You want to, you want to, the Lord invites us to take our burdens, to take our struggles, to take our fears before him. And he offers us genuine peace and comfort and help. Second, David praises God for his justice in rescuing his people. As, as the kings of Israel, David felt responsible for the well-being of the whole nation. And so he praises God for the victory he would give over the people's enemies. And so David continues to talk about the future as if it already happened. Psalm 9, 5 through 6 says this, You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruin. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. Does David hate foreigners, we must ask? Does, does he want God to rebuke the nations simply because they're a different nationality? Now, two Two observations make this clear that this is not the case. First, the word nations is parallel with the word wicked and enemy in these verses. And the second observation is that we are already met these nations in the Psalms. Psalm 2 tells us that the kings and the nation rage against God and against his anointed in Psalm 2, 1 through 3. These are not just any foreigners. These are the evil enemies of God and his king. In fact, Israel was friendly with the nations that, that live with them in peace. Hiram and king of Tyre loved David and men from Tyre helped build the temple and the furnishing. First Kings 5 tells us. David was not hateful and xenophobic, but he was confident that God's enemies would be so completely destroyed uh, that they would be utterly forgotten. Psalm 9, 7-8 says, God, on the other hand, will reign and rule forever, but, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. As King God will judge the world through David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, and, and when Paul was preaching to the Athenians, on Mar philosophers on Mars Hill, he applied this verse to Christ. Acts 17, 30-31 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. David's hope here is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God displays his glory in the world by judging the world with justice through the person and the work of Jesus. And when we read about the majesty of God's judgment in Psalm 9, we're ultimately reading about the rule and the reign of none other than the Lord Jesus. Third, God, David praises God for judging all humanity with justice. Psalm 9, 9 through 10 says, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. God is the hope for all people, the champion of the weak. He cares for everyone who's beaten down and oppressed. He is a refuge for the migrant workers paid below minimum wage, trapped in a vicious cycle of poverty. He cares for girls caught in human trafficking. He doesn't forget the activities of civil war in Syria or any war at that. He is a good and a just ruler who cares for everyone trampled and abused by this world. Psalm 146, 7 through 9 says that God is the one who executes justice for the oppressed. 
who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. You see, God is the hope of the oppressed. He cares for the weak and the vulnerable. And so if he cares for all people, how much more will he care for his own who call on the name of the Lord? God's purpose is to bless the world. And so David calls all people everywhere to praise the Lord. Psalm 9, 11 through 12 says, Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And here David calls everyone who hears and reads this psalm to praise God along with him. God's salvation will be proclaimed from Zion, the city of God, to the whole world. And this theme will be repeated throughout the book of Psalm. God's goodness flows from Israel to all peoples. In a real sense, this is one of David's great commission texts. This worldwide emphasis is reflected in verse 12 in the phrase, he who avenges blood. This, this name for God echoes the covenant God made with Noah and all his descendants, a covenant with all humanity. In Genesis 9, 5 through 6, God said to Noah, I will require a reckoning for the life of man, for God made man in his own image. Every human life is precious to God because every human being is a picture of God. God remembers every man and every woman, every boy and every girl because he or she bears his image. And he demands an accounting for the way in which they are treated. This, this means that the ends of the earth should praise the Lord. He does not forget the youngest child or miss the tears of the weak. If the world lifts up its eyes to see the beauty and the majesty of this God, the, the people of the world will praise him. God brings himself glory by ruling the world with justice. He saves the weak and the powerless. He will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the second main section of this psalm is David's prayer. David is still on the same topic because his prayer centers back on the glory of God and judging the world with justice. And so David here, his first petition he petitions God to deliver him personally. Psalm 9, 13 through 14 says this, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughters of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. Ultimately, God's deliverance would circle back to praise. God, David wants God to rescue him so that he can praise God even more. The gates in verse 14 of the city were a public place where people gathered the hub of city life. David wants to sing his praise before all the people of God. As the, as the people heard David re retelling what God had done, they would praise God for themselves. This is contagious praise. And yet David also petitions God to make himself known in the world by bringing justice in the course of everyday life. Psalm 9, 15 through 16 says this, The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made, and the net that they hide, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are ensnared in the work of their own hands. Now, this is really, really important because there are, there are many Christians that I have encountered that really, really struggle with the problem of evil. They've had untold evil happen to them. They've been abused. They've been ridiculed. They've been maybe beaten and on and on and on it goes. And they, they wonder about this issue. Is, is God really good? Can I, can I really trust God with the ordinary aspects and situations of my life? And the answer that I, that I want to give to that is yes. But understanding why I get to that answer is so important. And it starts with this. God's providence is his rule in the ordinary events of life. God, God does not save his judgment to pour it all out at the end of time. He, he weaves his justice into the everyday fabric of our lives. 
those who dig a trap for others to fall into, they fall into it themselves. God is not mocked. Sin carries its own punishment. Violent men tend to do to die violently. The greedy suffer the discontent that comes with their greed. Those who view pornography ruin their own sex lives. Gossip tears down people's character. As they spread stories, others think less of them. See, God's providence weaves justice into ordinary human life. God makes himself known through the natural consequences of our sin. And we see this all throughout the Bible. We see this in our own lives. God did not leave us abandoned. God's justice is weaved throughout the tapestry of our lives. And yes, at the end of time, his justice will be fully satisfied. He will judge man utterly and completely. Finally, David petitions God to put man in his place. Psalm 9, 17 through 20 says this, The wicked shall return to Sheol all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. An earlier psalm tells us that God created man a little lower than the heavenly beings in Psalm 8, 5. And yet our sinful nature is to lift ourselves up and to take the place of God. We, we love, right? The place of honor, the place of our worship is, is reserved for God alone. God alone is worthy. This is why in Revelation we, we see the people of God ascribing, uh, even the elders in Revelation 5 and, and Revelation 7, they, they are given crowns and they, they, they bow down and give the Lord the, their crowns because they know that they are in the presence of one who alone is worthy. You see, they treasure the one who is of infinite worth. And this is so important because today, that is what worship is. In our, in our worship, we are ascribing to the Lord the glory that he alone deserves. And remember, we're talking about the one who created us. We're talking about the one who made us. We're talking about the one who fashioned us in, in his own image, in his own likeness. And we're also talking about the one who upholds this world by the word of his power. And he's the one who knows our very thoughts before we think them. He knows the motivation of our hearts. He alone is worthy to be praised. And we are but his creatures. In 1905, Harvard uh, built Emerson Hall to be the new building for the philosophy department. The design included a, a, an inscription on the north facade over the main doorway. The Department of Philosophy decided that this inscription should read, Man is the measure of all things. This is a quote from the philosopher Protagoras, one of the earliest uh, statements of relativism. In many ways, it summarizes man's rejection of God. Now, the faculty instructed the architect to carve this quote above the door. The, the president of Harvard, Charles William Eliot, quietly decided otherwise, saying this. When the professors turned, returned uh, from the summer vacation, they found the building essentially complete and cut into the stone were the words, What is man that thou art mindful of him? The, the inscription is still there at Emerson Hall at Harvard University today. This conflict between President Eliot and the faculty captures the heart of our rebellion against God. The human heart says, it's all about me. There's no one above me. And yet David calls on God to humble us with his overwhelming power and glory. Verse 20 says, put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Do you today know that you are just a man if you are a man, and that you are just a woman if you are a woman? Have you lifted up your eyes to see God for who he is as who he's revealed himself to be? You see, God brings himself glory by ruling and by judging the world in justice. Solomon, in his wisdom, cannot hold a candle to the searchlight of God's judgment. You see, if you see God as revealed in the scriptures, your heart should leap to praise him. 
may you open your eyes to see God as he has revealed himself to be in the word of God. And may everything within you then praise the Lord. You see, you were made, you were made by God to glorify him and to enjoy him forever, as the Westminster Confession says. You were, you were made to honor and glorify God. It was us who rebelled against God. And, and by, by virtue of that, we are sinners by nature and by choice. The Bible is very clear that in Romans 3.23 and 6.23, all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in John 19.30, Jesus says, it is finished. It is finished. These are one of its last words. And, and what was finished? Well, at the cross, the full weight and the fury of God the Father came on God the Son. This, this is what we call, you know, propitiation. Jesus propitiated the wrath of God. He dealt finally and fully with it. And he expiated it. He removed the wrath of God from us so that we would no longer be children of wrath. Instead, we will be children of God. This is why Acts 16.31 is so important to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. Have, have you done that? Have you believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would say more than that, of course. We would talk about the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, the, the soon return, the second coming of Christ, as well, the sinfulness of man and on and on. But the point is, have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? If you're a Christian, are you preaching the justice of God? Do you believe that God is a just God? That all that God does, he does because he executes judgment, justice on the just and the unjust. Do you believe that all the ways of the Lord are, are just and pure and holy and good? Do you believe that God is working in this world? And do you know that, if, that if, if God was not working in this world, that things would be infinitely worse? You might think that it's bad now, and to be sure, it's bad. But even in, even in the common grace of God, God is, God is at work. God is at work. And the Holy Spirit is even restraining evil in the world so that it does not go unchecked. If it were not so, you would see tyranny. And injustice on a scale that you cannot even begin to fathom. That should that that actually should cause your mouth to go. And you should be speechless. God is good. He is executing, he is weaving his justice into thousands of situations, into millions of situations every day. And this is actually good news for us as Christians. Since God is a just God, he sent forth God the Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for us in our place and for our sin. He paid the penalty for us. He bled and died and rose in our place and for our sin. We are indwelt by the Spirit to go out now, and make disciples, who make disciples. We, we are called, we have been joined to, in union with Christ and his people. And so now we're, we're, we have a new family. We have a new family, the, the church, the body of Christ, which is why we are to be in the local church in the first place, under biblically qualified pastors, male pastors. And, and to join into one another, each other, as, as the New Testament tells us. And the church is to carry forth the glad news and tidings of, of Christ alone. 
The question is, do you carry forth that news? Or do you just sit on the pew and consume the sermon, never think about it, never do anything with it? Do you just consume podcast after podcast and after podcast and book after book and content after content? You never think about it. You never think about what it means for you. Have you been humbled by God? Have you been humbled by a vision of his grandeur and majesty? Calvin von Augustine said that the Christian life is humility, humility, humility. And he might have been thinking of John the Baptist who said he must increase in John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. You see, the more that we praise God, the more that we should be humbled, humbled by a vision of his glory, his majesty, his greatness. The more that we read, the more that we study the character of God, the attributes of God, the, the person and the work of Christ, the more that we read and study scripture, the more that we see clearly, you know what? This story is ultimately not about me. It is ultimately about God. It is ultimately about his glory. And the only proper response to that is to be humble especially as a Christian. Jonah 2.9 tells us that salvation is of the Lord. From beginning to end and everywhere in between our lives, God has been good to us. If you're a Christian, God saved you by his kindness. He saved you by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, while you were yet dead in your trespasses and sins. You have every reason as a Christian to be humble. And your worship should reveal, should reveal, your, it does reveal your worship. And I, and I want to plead with you to think about that this week. Think about how is your worship, even right now, how is it? Do you respond in your worship in, in repentance? After you hear the word preached, or do you just pretend like it doesn't matter? You just go on with your day, you took in the content, it never affects you, you know everything. What is your response to the preached word? What is your response to, to learning and discovering more about who God is as he's revealed in his word? The, the, the proper response is, is not to Say, you know what, I know that. That's great if you do. But, but I'm concerned about the response of your heart, the motivation of your heart. All of us, no matter where we are at in our walk with God, no matter how long we've been in Christ, our attitude to the preached word of God does matter. Our response should be one of humility. Even if we do know it, it should be one of humility. It should be one of thankfulness. It should be one of gratitude. This is, this is the kind of heart that praises God for who he is. And it's one that honors God. It's one that esteems the Lord. It's one that treasures the Lord and then tells other people about the infinite treasure and matchless wonder of God. In fact, the more that you think of God the more you'll tell other people about God because you cannot help it. You worship what you treasure and what you treasure is what you value. And what you value is where your life is going. You cannot help it. You cannot help but love what you love. And that's, what our wor that's why our worship is to be grounded in and shaped by the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we... We thank you for the revealed word of God in the scriptures. We thank you that you have not left us without a witness in your revealed truth in the word of God. And so we, I pray, Lord, that, that, that you would show us by the response to maybe even this sermon or to other sermons and, and to teaching, to reading, to things that we're reading, to even our scripture reading. Help us to see very clearly what our response is to those things. 
Is it one of, you know what, I already know this, I, I, I've already got this figured out, or, or is it one even of appreciation for the writer and, and the, 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 the author, the, the, the preacher being faithful to the word? Lord, help us to have a posture, a heart posture of humility that, that treasures, treasures to learn and discover, to grow in appreciation of the infinite treasure of who you are. Help us to treasure you more. Help us to honor you more. Help us, to, Lord, to see more of your glory as revealed in the word. And help us to grow in gratitude and thankfulness and appreciation and enjoyment of all that you are and all that you have revealed yourself to be in the word. And so we thank you, Lord, for who you are. And we thank you for that, that you have not left us without your word. Your word is a light, as the psalmist says, unto our feet, and it, and it lights our path. Lord, show us the many ways in which we fail to have our lives lighted by the path and, and fail to walk in the path that you have assigned as set forth in your word. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.